So this summer, we've been going through 1 John. This is a letter written by the Apostle John, the uh, same guy who wrote the Gospel of John. Uh, Yasuda just made that mistake. I keep making that mistake. Uh, we loved the Gospel of John a few years ago when we studied it. Now we're studying this letter that he wrote. Uh, the, the events of the Gospel of John took place when John was a teenager. Now he's many years older. He's maybe the last apostle standing. And he's writing this letter to a church who's discouraged and despairing and deconstructing and wondering if this thing can all be real. And his his encouragement to them uh, is summed up in a word that really is the topic sentence for this whole section we've been looking at in chapter 2, verse 28. If you have your Bible, flip to 1 John 2, 28. There he says this. He says, and now little children abide in him. Abide in him. That word abide means to remain, to stay, to stay connected, abide in him. He had said in John 15, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. We got to stay connected. And John's saying, I don't want you to deconstruct your faith. I don't want you to deny your faith. I don't want you to get so discouraged. I know that things are tough out there, and I know that people come against you, and I know the world sometimes hates you, and I know that sometimes Christians disappoint you, and I know that God sometimes doesn't answer prayers the way you hoped, but here's what I want you to do. Abide. And now little children abide in him. Why? So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. I got good news tonight. Jesus is coming back. I mean, how many of you think like that would be dope if that happened tonight? Like that'd be like, bring it on, Lord. That would be like, we're not only ready to get out of here, but we're ready to get into his presence and its fullness. And his presence is fullness of joy, it says. And I just am totally ready to punt on Phoenix in July. So Lord Jesus, come, come quickly. Uh, but Jesus is coming. And whenever he comes, what John's saying is, I want you to stay so connected to him so that when he comes, you're not going like, oh, uh, are, we, are we cool, Jesus? You don't shrink back. But you have confidence. You say, oh man, it's so good to see you. That's what he wants. And so that's what he's been doing in this section. So the beginning of chapter three, he talked about how you need to have a clear identity, that you are children of God in Christ. That was what he talked about early. Then in the middle section, which we looked at last week, he said, if you want to abide, if you want to have confidence in his coming, you can't make peace with sin. You can't just keep letting sin go unfought, unrestrained, unbattled. Uh, if you do that, you're actually more like a child of the devil than like a child of God. And now here he says, it's not just that you resist sin, but that it's actually you pursue something else. And in this passage, he's going to say, we need to pursue love. Now, there's an analogy that sometimes you hear uh, in the church. And if you're new to church, if you're new to Christianity, you'll hear this analogy and it can be confusing to you because you'll hear Christians talk about, man, I just really love the body. Man, I just, I just want to get involved. I just want to make a difference in the body. And you hear all these people talk about the body, the body, the body. And you're like going, they seem obsessed with, with the body. Is, it, is this like an exercise thing? Because I look at them. It doesn't look like it's probably an exercise thing. But, uh, but I keep hearing them talk about the body. What is this? Well, the body is an analogy that the scripture uses to describe the church. The Bible describes the church as the body of Christ, that after Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father, he then sent his spirit and he empowers the church to be the body of Christ. We are the Jesus to the world. We're the hands and feet of Christ. And so the body of Christ is the church. And uh, the, the, what connects a body together, if you actually just think anatomically, what connects a body together are joints. It's your elbows, and it's your wrists, and it's your knuckles, and it's your knees, and it's your ankles. It's your joints. 
right? We don't need to go head, shoulders, knees, and toes. But you get, I mean, you guys know how a body works. And when a body is working well, when the joints are working well, it's smooth and it's strong and it's connected and it creates stability and it allows things to grow strong. Well, the thing that helps joints work smoothly is a fluid that's called synovium. It's the lining of the joints. What helps your joints move well when they're moving well is that synovium fluid. Now, imagine, imagine that your body actually started to attack the synovium and started to attack the thing that makes the joints work smoothly. Like, can you imagine the devastating effect that that would have on your joints? And uh, some of you go, well, yeah, I can. There's actually a thing for that. And there is. It's called rheumatoid arthritis. My aunt has rheumatoid arthritis. And when I was serving in a college ministry 20 years ago, there was a college-age guy who would walk around with a cane because his whole body was filled with rheumatoid arthritis. It's a condition, it's an autoimmune disorder uh, where your body attacks that synovium, which is there to help your body flourish, but instead your immune system attacks it and it makes it where instead of your joints being strong and supple and fluid and moving, instead of that, they're red and they're swollen and they're irritated. Over time, they're eventually deformed. It's really painful. And so think about this as the, as the word picture tonight. If, if Jesus' church is the body of Christ, then the synovium that, that keeps our body connected, that keeps our body moving with strength, the synovium fluid of the body of Christ is love. Love is that synovium fluid. Love is that thing that greases our relationships and helps us keep moving together. And this passage emphasizes that connection. Look at verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So if, if the body is that, if love is that synovium fluid of the body of Christ that allows us to be the hands and feet of Jesus to the world, then what... John is doing in this passage is he's emphasizing the importance of that love. He's emphasizing the importance of that synovium fluid, so to speak. And then what he's doing in this text is he's actually highlighting three potential dangers, three threats, three kinds of spiritual rheumatoid arthritis, three areas where we as Christians tend to attack love rather than letting love flourish and letting the body be healthy. So that's what we're going to look at here tonight is the priority of love and then three threats. So first, let's look at the priority of love. It, it was mentioned in verse 11, but it actually talked about in the verse before. We didn't mention this much last week, but here's where we ended last week. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Now that, that sentence should get your attention, right? Whoa. How do I know if I'm a child of God or a child of the devil? Wow. And if you weren't here last week, you should go back and listen to that. And what you'll find is it's actually a lot easier to be a child of the devil than you think. It doesn't take being a genocidal mass murderer. It just takes being totally comfortable with a sinful lifestyle. Because here's what he says. Here's how you know. He says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. So if you're not fighting sin, if you're not resisting sin, then there's no evidence, there's no confidence you should have that you're of God. But then look at what he says at the end. And I didn't emphasize this last week because I knew we were going to talk about it this week. But here's how he finishes. He says, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So if you just go on in unrepentant, unbattled sin, you shouldn't have any confidence that you belong to God. Also, if you don't love God's people, if you don't love your brothers, that should like be a big warning. And some people like go, well, you know, I, I love God. I just, 
I just don't like the church. And uh, I just want to tell you what that is. is That's like saying, I like God. Not crazy about his wife. Like imagine if someone came up to me and said, Luke, man, I've spent some time with you. I really like you. Uh, You know, Molly, though. What's What's her deal? Like, I don't care for her a lot. Right, right. What, what, how's the rest of that conversation going to go? It might end with a punch. I don't know. I mean, that, like, like, what do you mean? Like, and so here's what I want to say is we can't say we love God and we're just like, eh, about his people. No. He says, how do you know you're a child of God? You have love for the brothers. Now, this emphasis on love, it's through this whole book. Chapter 2, verse 10, he says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. Chapter 3, verse 23, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Chapter 4 goes all in on this concept of love because it's who God is. Look at chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Well, why? Why is that? Why is love such an indication of connection to the new birth in God? Why? Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, we're going to talk about that more in coming weeks. God is love. But here's just a mind-blowing thing to think about for a moment, is that God has eternally existed, Father, Son, and Spirit, one God in three persons. Because we have a tri-personal God, it is true that God is love. Get this, if you just had like one person, like a lot of religions, like Allah, right? In in Islam, Allah can't be all loving. He's mostly all powerful. He actually would have to create something in order to be loving. But at the heart of the triune God is love. And so therefore at the heart of God's people, God's children should be love. So here's what he says, chapter four, verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 412, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfecting us. In other words, God's love is shown by us loving. So this is just all over 1 John and it's all over this section. We already looked at verse 11, uh, this expectation. We should love one another. Love is this sign of life. It's this vital sign, right? Like, like if you ever work around paramedics or you work with EMTs or you show up at a difficult scene or something kind of crisis happens, like you're gonna check for vital signs. You're gonna check a pulse. You're gonna check for breathing. You're gonna check temperature. What are these vital, those are the vital signs of life. Here's what he's saying. What are the vital signs of eternal life? How do you know someone has a spiritual pulse with God? Here's how, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life Because we have great doctrine. Oh, wait, that's not what it says. Uh, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we sing really loud. No. What does it say? We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. You could have the best resurrection theology, and if you don't love, you abide in death. It's a big deal. It's the sign of eternal life. 
Well, what do we mean when we're talking about love? Well, great question. It's answered in verse 16. Here it is. By this, we know love. So here you would go, well, what is love anyways? It's just a feeling? No, no, no. It's something much more significant. Verse 16, by this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This is where we get the definition that we use so often around here about love, that love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand payback or that the person's deserving. Where do you get that? Well, mostly from 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. It is the sacrificial death of Christ in our place when we don't deserve it. That's the model of love. What else does he say about love? Well, one more key thing, verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. <laughs> I don't care what you say. I care what you do. And Jesus asked his disciples. You know, he said, you know, there was, there was a, a guy who said, well, I'm going to do all the things you said, but then he never did it. And then another guy who said, yeah, I'm not interested, but he went ahead and did it. Which one actually lived out the kingdom of God? The one who actually did it. He says, I don't want you to love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So th this love, is, it's not an optional thing. It's not a side thing. It's not like, well, this is only for the, the varsity Christians. This is a core, essential sign of life, resurrection reality thing. We, it's a priority that we love. This is why uh, this season, and as we head into this fall, this is why we're launching something that I'm very excited about for our church. Um, it's called the See Jesus School the see Jesus school. And the whole idea is that if Jesus himself is God and God is love, then the way that we're going to learn to love is actually by seeing Jesus. And if you, uh, if you watch The Chosen, seen the show that's been going around, it's been on YouTube and other places, you watch The Chosen. I mean, if you've ever seen it, people that like The Chosen, they'll say, they all, we all say the same thing. We go, oh man, it is so cool to like see that Jesus is like a real person. And, I, and it is. They do an amazing job with the show. But here's what I want to tell you. You don't need a TV show for that. You can get that from this. Now, the thing is, you got to learn how to do it. you got to slow down. you got to pay attention. you got to pay, you got to start looking at Jesus as a person. So this is what the See Jesus School does. It says, hey, let's focus on the person of Jesus. If Jesus is love and if our, you know, calling is to love one another, then the way we're going to learn that is actually by looking at the person of Jesus. So that's the first aspect of the See Jesus School. The second aspect is that we're called to follow in the path of Jesus. We're called to follow in the way of Jesus, which means we're going to willingly self-sacrifice. We're going to suffer. We're going to face hardship. And we need strength to be able to do that and to enter into that suffering. And because we need strength, the third piece of the See Jesus School is that we need the power of God. The power of God is the Holy Spirit. We experience the Holy Spirit through prayer. And so this See Jesus School, it's a, it's a school year long, September to May, discipleship program. We've got 88 slots, about a third of them uh, headed into today. We're full. I don't know how many uh, more got filled up today, but I just want to tell you, if that at all is intriguing to you and you're like looking for a way to jumpstart some stuff in your spiritual life, like I would really encourage you to think about the See Jesus School the person of Jesus, the path of Jesus, the power of Jesus. We'll keep doing it. We'll do it, God willing, if it goes well every year. And I think in four or five years, we'll be a different church. Because instead of just talking about love, we'll see what it looks like to do it in deed and in truth. So the priority is love. That's the synovium fluid. That's the thing that keeps our body working so that we can make a difference for the world. Now, there's three threats. There's three kinds of spiritual rheumatoid arthritis, if you will. 
three areas that John highlights in this passage that are a threat to our love allowing us to function healthily. Uh, The first one is this. The first threat is coveting. 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 To be jealous, to be envious, to want what someone else has. This is what he talks about in, in verse 12. This is just an interesting place that John decides to go. He says in verse 11, we should love one another. Then look at the example, the negative example he uses in verse 12. He says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Now, if you're not familiar with the story of Cain, the story of Cain happens really early. Cain and Abel happens early in the Bible. You have Genesis 1 and 2 talks about God creating everything, and it's really good. Genesis 3 is they rebel. Genesis 4 is Cain and Abel. Let me show it to you. Here's uh, the first part of that story. It says this. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. By the way, just kind of interesting to me, Cain's the first person ever born. When Adam and Eve are created, Cain is born. What happens of this man, this first man who's ever born? Verse 2, and again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now, the Bible does not really ever tell us why. What was it? Okay, Abel brought some animal stuff, and Cain brought some plant stuff, and God had regard for Abel's, but not for Cain's. Why? And a lot of people speculate. Maybe it was the nature of the sacrifice. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe it was the heart of Abel versus Cain. Perhaps. It doesn't really say. But we just understand there's times when things don't go the way we want. There's times when we think we're doing it right and it doesn't go well. And there's times when it's like circumstances and we go, God, where are you? And, uh, and that's how Cain felt. It says, Cain is offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And so the Lord intervenes and the Lord says to Cain, verse 6, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, Will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. In other words, I know this didn't go the way you wanted, Cain, but listen, this isn't the end of the story. You can repent. You can trust me, right? This is not just about the stuff that happens to you, but a lot of life is how you respond to the stuff that happens to you. He's saying, don't don't let this bitterness, don't let this anger overtake you because sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you. It's trying to take you over. That's what that word means. Verse 8, what happens? Well, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. That's just a striking thing. I mean, things were so good in Genesis 1 and 2. And Sometimes we read the story in Genesis 3 and go, come on, what's the big deal? They ate some fruit. Yeah, but that fruit had in it such rebellion that less than one chapter later, there's murder. That's how sick sin is. So verse 9, and the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? By the way, class, uh, what's the answer to that question? Yes, you're your brother's keeper. Right, If you're a child of God, you're your brother's keeper. 
If you're a child of the devil who just wants to seek, kill, and destroy, then no. And Cain reveals his true heart. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now, again, there's so much of this story that we don't totally understand. Why did it work out this way or this? What was really going on? But John, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in verse 12, gives us some real insight. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So somewhere as a threat to the love that was supposed to exist between these brothers was this coveting, this comparing, this jealousy, this envy, this I want what he has. And here's, here's what we just have to understand. Compassion stops when comparing starts. Compassion stops when comparing starts. If you want to be a person of love, you cannot also be a person of constant comparison. Because that comparison will lead to coveting. It'll lead to jealousy. It'll lead to envy. It'll lead to rivalry. Compassion stops when comparing starts. And yet we just compare all the time. Well, I want their kind of marriage. I wish my kids liked each other as much as those people's kids liked each other. How come, how come, you know, we started kind of in the same place and we went to the same school, but their career really took off and mine's here. You know, I work just as hard as they do, but they get all the recognition and they get all the praise and nobody notices what I do. Man, I, I, how come I'm still so stuck financially? How come I don't get to go on all the vacations they get to go on? Like I, they get to stay in a castle in Italy. This was the conversation I was having yesterday with a guy. Hey, how's your summer been? It's been pretty good, man. We spent two weeks in a castle in Italy. <laughs> oh, why? Well, spent a week in Toledo, Ohio at my mother-in-law's house. <laughs> right? And if you're not careful, you get into this comparison. And all of a sudden, you lose interest. You're not compassionate. I was like, oh, I feel so big. You only had one room of Wi-Fi because the signal couldn't get through the 15th century brick walls. Oh, wah. Right? Like, like you, you start comparing, and all of a sudden you just go, I don't have any more empathy. I don't have any more compassion. I don't have any more concern. But here's something you got to understand. Every person in this room, everyone you meet, everyone you know, everyone you don't know, listen, everyone is fighting a battle you know nothing about. And if people are wealthy, there's pressure that comes with that. And if people are great looking, there's pressure that comes with that. And if people are wildly successful, there's pressure that comes with that, just like there's pressure with not having all that stuff. And our job is not to figure out who wins and who loses. Our job is to love. And compassion stops when comparing starts. So that's a threat. That sense of constantly measuring up and comparing and trying to figure out who has it better and who has it worse and where do I rank? You're not going to be a loving person if you do that. It'll stiffen up the body of Christ. And instead of rejoicing with those who rejoice, like, like we love the part of Romans 12 where it says, weep with those who weep. Yes, that feels appropriate. But rejoice with those who rejoice. Ah, that's hard. Because I'm trying to get pregnant. And they weren't even trying and they got a baby. And I've been slaving away at my job for years. And he wasn't even looking and he got a promotion. This meets the real world. And listen, our calling isn't to win at life. Our calling is to love. 
So we got to be careful of the coveting. The second thing we got to watch out for is combating. Combating, combating, just developing a, a, an all-the-time battle mentality. And there's a reason why we might develop that that's described in verse 13. Verse 13 is an interesting little just insert into this whole section. He says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Don't be surprised. Like, like your kids come and they're like, well, that's not fair. And what do you say? Or at least what do you think? Life's not fair, bud. Hey, that's how it is. Life's not fair. That's what John's saying. Like all Christians today in America, we're going, oh, everybody hates us. People are against the church. And John goes, I know I told you that 2,000 years ago. Verse 13, do not be surprised, brothers. Of course the world hates you. Everything you stand for is against the systems and powers and principalities and desires of the world. You say there's a God and he made everything and he deserves all your allegiance. That doesn't fly with the world. You say, hey, we're all sinners and we all deserve God's just wrath if we don't repent for our sin. That doesn't fly in the world. You say, by the way, there's only one way is trusting in Jesus Christ. He's the only sinless man and you can't ever earn your way through your own goodness or your own effort or your own anything. That, that's really narrow. The world doesn't like that. And so it shouldn't surprise us at times as Christians when we feel under siege, when we feel like, man, we're on the outside and we're on the margins and people don't like us. But here's what happens. Christians who start to obsess about that start nursing their bitterness. And, and here's what I want to tell you. You can't spend all day, you can't every evening watch hours and hours of primetime cable news that nurses your bitterness and then expect to be a loving person. You can't do it. So the threat here is if we develop this, we're always fighting and it's always a war, right? There's the cult, we have culture wars, so that feels maybe important. We, we have cupcake wars. Why are we warring about cupcakes? Like, let it go. Just eat, enjoy the cupcakes. Like, we're, but we fight about everything. And if you fight about everything, the love of the body of Christ is gonna stiffen up. And all of a sudden, instead of being the hands and feet of Jesus, we're gonna be in pain because we forgot our mission. The first threat is coveting. Second threat is combating. The third threat is closing. Watch out for closing. If you start closing yourself off, if you start shutting your heart up, if you start locking yourself away, the body of Christ will begin to stiffen up. Look at chapter 3, verse 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? He's saying, you know, Jesus laid down his life. We got to lay our lives down for each other. You see people that have needs. You could meet those needs. What are you going to do? And he's saying, please don't close your heart. Don't shut your heart. This word is the same word in Revelation. It describes the sky being shut so there was no rain. It describes in John 20, the doors being locked when the disciples are hiding from the authorities. The doors are locked, they're shut, they're closed. And he's saying the temptation is when you see a world of need, even when you have resources, the need can sometimes be so overwhelming that you close your heart. And I just wanna encourage us tonight, let's never be a church that closes our heart. And I'm so grateful to God for the open heart and the open hands of generosity that he's put in this church. I just, I rejoice in it. I thank the Lord for it. 
And, and guys, we can't ever let it change. Just thinking back on a few things, like the last three years in our Christmas offering, we do a Christmas offering if you're new here every year around Christmas time. We give you a chance to give over and above. Oftentimes it's for causes in our community. And in just the last three years, you've given over $400,000 to that Christmas offering. Man, that's amazing. You've bought ultrasound machines and you've made pathways for people to pursue legal immigration and you've done all kinds of incredible stuff in our community. Helped start uh, studies for young men who are learning what it is to be a man in inner, inner city schools. I mean, you just have done incredible stuff helping people in need. This is also... Uh, happens through our benevolence ministry. Some of you give to our benevolence fund, and uh, it's just incredible what God has allowed us to, to do, to partner in, to, to meet the needs of people that are in need, to help women going through domestic violence situations to get legal help, and to help other people get vehicles, and to help other people get medical care, and to help like, fund real needs and real moments of crisis for people who need it in our church. Like that, because you haven't closed your heart, we're able to do that. This is why we do the M25 offering. We do it every month, the second Sunday of the month. M25 just stands for Matthew 25. That's the place where Jesus says, whatever you did for the most vulnerable people, you did it for me. And so we do that offering. And it's not a financial offering. It brings cans, goods, and diapers, and formula, and gift cards, whatever it is that given month. And those go to our partners, and our partners in the community then distribute those to the people in need. It's also why we're doing this Compassion Connect clinic in September, September 2nd. And man, I'd love for you to be a part of this. If any of these uh, things that I'm going to talk about just fit you, like this would be a way for you to go, okay, there's a world in need. I don't want to close my heart. I want to open my heart. So uh, Compassion Connect is one of our ministry partners. And one of the things they do is a number of times a year, they host clinics at churches or schools or other places for folks that don't have insurance, don't have health care, don't have that stuff and need to be able to get it. And so what's going to happen September 2nd, this room and this campus will be transformed. Part of the room will be filled with all sorts of dental equipment. Part of the room will be filled with the opportunity to get medical checkups. The lobby, there's going to be just hair falling all over the lobby as people cut hair. Um, there's opportunities to do that stuff. And so I just would tell you, if you're like in, in, if you're a dental hygienist and you can at all be here on September 2nd, open your heart and come help out. If you're at all involved in healthcare, open your heart, come help out. Some of you, like, here's a need that, that exists is do you speak Spanish? Because if you speak Spanish and you could be a translator, some of the folks are going to come and they're going to only speak Spanish and some of the providers are going to only speak English and you could be an incredible resource as you help translate. So whatever the case might be, I just would encourage you to do it. And I just so, like, I just know already that event's going to be awesome because we have a church that doesn't close its heart. And I just want to tell us, don't close our hearts. Let's keep it open. And here's the thing is sometimes the easiest thing to do is to just give money. But the most expensive things that we got to be careful we don't close our heart to is, is the need of time the need of endurance. Because you know what? The best needs are the ones that pop up and then you meet it and it's over. But a lot of needs stick around and stick around and get worse and get harder. And you open up your heart, but man, it's hard to stay open. I just want to encourage us. Like, let's keep our heart open. Now, how... How do we do that? Especially when you look around the world and there is just so much need. Like, how do you keep track of all this stuff? How do you keep track of all these needs? What do you even do? Uh, here's something that has helped me. 
is to try to think about my life and the needs that exist around me in three circles. The first circle is the circle of control. Second is the circle of influence. Third is the circle of concern. Right, a lot of times we get this goofed up because we know way too much, right? The internet has ruined us. <laughs> we know about everything. There's stuff we know about that you would never know about and you know about it right away, right? And so the, the circle of concern can be very, very big and very overwhelming. And so what we have to do is to say, okay, uh, I can't meet every need in my circle of concern. I have to just meet the needs in my circle of control. What are the things I know I could actually do? So, okay, I have these friends they're going through a crisis. Things are difficult in their family. They're on edge. They could really use a night out. You know what? We could watch their kids for a night. That's in my circle of control. I can meet that need. Let's do it. Then you have the circle of influence. You go, I don't, I don't really know how much I can do about that. Right? This for me is like the compassion connect, right? Like, I don't even floss regularly, let alone be able to help anyone with their dental stuff, right? Like, so like, I, I'm no good. I, I mean, <laughs> I guess I could cut hair. I, I pity the fool who would sit underneath my scissors. Right, so I can't do much there, but I have some influence. So one of the things I did is just when I was getting my hair cut, the gal that always cuts my hair, I said, hey, I don't know what you have going on September 2nd, but here's this thing we're doing at our church. And uh, I know you're not like a church person, but man, we'd love to, I don't know if you ever do anything to just volunteer in the community. We'd love to have you. So again, that's like, I don't have control. I, maybe I have influence, but you just go, there's a little bit I could do. But then there's concern. And concern, you really can't do anything. At most, you can pray. Maybe give money to someone else who has influence or control. Right? These, are the big, these are the big needs. Right? These are the things that happen on the other parts of the world. These are the things that you just go, these are the intractable problems. I go, I don't, I don't even know what to do with this. And we get overwhelmed. And here's what happens. Is because we get overwhelmed with the stuff in the area of concern, it paralyzes us in the area of control. And so because we can't meet every need, we don't meet any. It's one of the best things you can do. I heard Andy Stanley say this year ago, years ago, is, is do for one person what you wish you could do for everyone. You know, I don't know if I, I can't meet every need. That's outside, that's in the area of concern, but I can meet one need. And most of all, I just, I look at this text and go, oh, let's not close our heart. Let's not shut it up. Let's not get burned out and bitter. You go, well, how do you do that in this world? This world that's overwhelmed with needs. How do you not get burned out? How do you not close your heart? Well, you gotta go back over and over and over to verse 16. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. How do we do it? We keep looking to Jesus. We keep seeing Jesus. We keep seeing Jesus love us. And as we look at him and we focus on him, somehow by the spirit, he provides the power for our hearts to stay open and for us to be his hands and his feet to a watching world. Let's pray. So God, tonight we thank you for your love. God, we thank you that you're a God, not first and foremost of power, though you're all powerful, but that you're a God of love. And Lord, that you invite us into that, whew, stunning. And so Lord, I pray that you would help us to prioritize love, to resist the coveting and the jealousy that gets in the way. God, to resist the combating mentality that's always at war and always on edge. God, to 
resist closing. Help us to stay open. Help us to stay soft. And God, would you use this church to be your hands and feet to each other and to the world out there. In Jesus' name, amen.